more people go to things like counseling for anxiety-type problems than for any other kind of issue. In 2019, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America reported that serious anxiety affects approximately 40 million adults in the U.S. That's about 18% of the population. And I don't know if those numbers have been done again since COVID, but I'm going to only assume that those have gone up since then. While we currently live in a culture that's far too hurried and frantic for its own good, human fear is nothing new. It's as old as we are. For instance, some of you may be familiar with the story of how Martin Luther, the famous 16th century German reformer, came to be a monk before his conversion. Martin's father worked in mining, and he had big plans for his son to become a big-shot lawyer. And so Martin was often sent off to law, study law at uh, the University of Erfurt, where he developed a reputation as a uniquely gifted thinker. But despite being a brilliant mind, Martin was also an exceptionally anxious person. In particular, he feared death, and specifically, he feared dying without being able to confess his most recent sins to a priest, and therefore, in his mind, die outside of God's grace. Well, when he was about 21 years old, while traveling back from university, from to the university from visiting his parents, he was caught in a thunderstorm. And as he's going along, a lightning bolt hits so close to him that he's thrown from his horse. And at that moment, he is certain that God is intent on killing him right then and right there. And wouldn't you know, there's not a priest in sight. So, with the breath knocked out of him and he's like clinging to a big rock, he screams out this panicked and desperate somewhat impulsive vow to Saint Anne, who was considered to be the patroness saint of minors. He said, Saint Anne, help me, and I shall become a monk. Of course, we know that Martin survived, but to the fretful young Luther, a vow was a vow, and against his very exasperated father's wishes, he did as he promised, and he became an Augustinian monk. Not surprisingly, Martin was just as brilliant and just as fearful of a monk as he was a layperson. Famously, he froze speechless while giving his first mass, again terrified that God might strike him dead on the spot for even the slightest mistake or the slightest hint of irreverence. Needless to say, before Luther became the great reformer that we all think of, he was a man who was hounded and enslaved by fear. Of course, the Bible itself is filled with examples of people who are fearful and anxious, and if we're all paying attention, it's not difficult to notice that we're all incredibly fragile people and therefore fearful creatures. Truly to be human is to know fear and weakness. Today we'll be looking at a story most of you will likely recognize from the fourth chapter of Mark's Gospel. And this passage holds out the promise that every disciple of Christ, even in the presence of great spiritual danger, is as safe as Christ is faithful to do his Father's work. Of course, if we don't pursue this truth, then our hope will likely be misplaced, and the power that our fears and anxieties hold over us will only be reinforced within us. But if we pursue it, the comfort of God's presence will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, regardless of our circumstances. So turn with me now. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. 
If you don't have a Bible, uh, the Pewback Bible, it's on page 839. We'll be reading through the end of, ch of the chapter to verse 41. If you've been a Christian for long, this is one of those stories that can almost become too familiar. And so we don't want to miss anything. It's easy to miss things when these are passages we've read over and over and over sometimes. So let's take a look at it again this Lord's Day with fresh eyes. Would you stand with me now as we read God's holy word? On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You can be seated. So there's one big idea that I want you to walk away with today from that passage. It's something like this. When we're afraid, our fear of Christ brings glory to God and peace to us. I realize that may sound odd, but bear with me. We'll see the idea developed in four movements, which you'll find listed on the back of your bulletin. First, in verses 35 through 36, a purposeful direction. In 37 and 38, a panicked people. In 39, a powerful display. And in 40 and 41, a peaceful fear. So to give a bit of context, the central theme running through Mark's gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who is fully God and fully human. And this section of Mark testifies to this, revealing Jesus' transcendence, his power, and his authority, and therefore identifying him as the proper object of our awe and worship. As our story begins, we find Jesus and his disciples once again at the always important Sea of Galilee. Jesus has been preaching for days. He's had to climb into their boat because the crowds were pressing in on him so hard that he was in danger of being crushed. He had to address accusations from the scribes that he's some sort of messenger or agent of Satan. And on top of all that, his family keeps trying to get him to come home because they think he's crazy. So there's opposition for Jesus at every turn. And he is exhausted. So here, we can't miss one of the most overt examples of Jesus' full humanity on generous display. He is exhausted. Before all this goes down, Mark wants us to see with indisputable clarity that Jesus is every bit as human as you and I. And that sets the stage for the very intentional direction the rest of this story will take, starting in verses 35 and 36. So in the wake of his exhaustion, when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go across to the other side of the lake, and leaving the crowd, the disciples took Jesus with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And as much as we can't overlook this great display of Jesus' humanity, we also can't help but acknowledge his full divinity from the outset. 
As God, nothing Jesus does is arbitrary or pointless. He knows exactly what he's doing and exactly what is coming, and he's leading it to them on purpose. None of this is an accident or just simple chance. The original language reveals even a sense of urgency when Jesus said, let's go across to the other side. Jesus is on a mission, and he never loses sight of that, whether his disciples notice or not. His face is set resolutely to the cross, even this early in his ministry. Simultaneously, he is obeying and fulfilling his Father's eternal saving plan, and in the process, he's changing his people for the better, which, of course, he's still doing today. Our Good Shepherd still leads all his disciples, at times into green pastures and next to still waters, where things feel safe and there's an overall general peace in life, and other times through valleys of shadow and death, where life feels dangerous and opportunities to be afraid and to worry seem to be waiting around every corner. He promises that in this world we will have tribulation. And yet he also promises, having overcome the world, that he will complete us and make us like him in holiness and in peace. And so, the fledgling church, these 12 men, set out not knowing the conflict that awaits them. And in verses 37 and 38, we see his people panic. Mark tells us that a great windstorm arose and the waves are breaking into the boat so that the boat is already filling with water. But Jesus is in the stern, which is in the back of the boat, by the way, asleep on the cushion, which is something they kept there specifically for traveling passengers. And the disciples wake Jesus up and say to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? First off, a few things to notice. Remember, these are professional fishermen, so when they say things are this bad, they're not just being dramatic. They fished these same waters their entire lives. They knew the Sea of Galilee was notorious for its sudden violent storms, especially during the day, which is why they would fish, and in this case, travel at night. This really is a life or death situation, and they know it. And so to a great extent, their fear is absolutely warranted and legitimate. In the same way, God has built into us a good and a healthy fear of things that threaten us. You know that, that meme with the dog that's sitting at the table drinking coffee and his house is like burning down all around him? Uh, and he says what? This is fine. Well, it's not fine, is it? That's why the meme is funny. It's especially funny because sometimes we act like life is fine when it's not. No one in their right mind would just sit there when their house is burning down all around them with no sense of fear or urgency over those circumstances. No, they would get up and they would get out of there, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Those are not ordinary circumstances, and this is no ordinary storm. In fact, this is the first of three times that Mark uses the Greek term megas to describe the storm. Think mega right? A great or a mega windstorm arose. Additionally, the imagery of wind and waves or storm-tossed seas is all over the Bible, and Mark assumes that we understand those themes, 
when we read this story. For example, things like Noah's flood or the crossing of the Red Sea or Jonah's own stormy sea situation. In each of these, violent waters threaten and they judge and they destroy things. These storm and these seas are a dark and a hopeless picture of the forces of sin, Satan, and death bearing down on these terrified and struggling disciples. Unfortunately, in all of this, the disciples are doing what we all, left to ourselves, do best. They are unsuccessfully trying to save themselves. They've got gospel amnesia again. They've forgotten who is with them. It's not that they aren't thinking about Jesus. They are. But it's something more like, how can Jesus be, of all things, sleeping at a time like this? What's wrong with him? When they finally have nothing left that they can do with a tone of desperate and panicked rebuke, they, as one translation puts it, woke him up shouting, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You know that question well, don't you? Who doesn't? God, where are you in this? How can you be letting this happen? Don't you see? Don't you know? I thought you understood. Don't you care? Seems to be generally two ways to ask questions like those. We can ask with trust. Drawing near to God in our affliction with lament, like in Psalm 13, for instance, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. We can also do it without trust, can't we? Refusing to come to him or even turning away in bitterness, like in Psalm 73. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all dang long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And since we as Christians are both sinners and sufferers, we will most often find some complicated mixture within us of faith and doubt when we face fearful circumstances. This is evident in the different ways that the disciples' comments are recorded in the three Gospels that this story is included in. Matthew highlights the appropriate desperation of the disciples, Luke highlights their panic, and Mark highlights their anger or frustration. So what is Jesus to do with such a fragile, fearful, and faithlessly frustrated bunch of people like them? And if we're honest, more often than we might like to admit, like us. Well, we're about to find out. In verse 39, a story reaches its climax as Jesus displays his divine power over creation. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. You might expect in a moment like this that Jesus would get up annoyed and rebuke his disciples. He's obviously not bothered by the storm, and he obviously needs his rest. If such violent circumstances couldn't stir Jesus, then what could? It's not until his disciples cry out to him. When they and we cry out to him, he will and he does listen and he rises. It wasn't the storm 
And it wasn't their panic that moved him. It was his love. The faith of the disciples was nothing more than a tiny mustard seed at this point. But it came from God, and it's enough. Despite us, God cares for us. His care for us is thankfully not dependent upon us. Instead, it's dependent upon Him in all His steadfast love and mercy. And rather than speaking harshly to His people, as Psalm 103 says, He remembers our frame that we are dust. And instead, He speaks harshly to the weather. Peace, be still. Or quiet. And the wind is silent and the sea is still. Here's that second mega. There was a great or a mega calm. And these megas are actually meant to build upon each other, uh, where the one that follows is always greater than the one that came before it. So, really, there was a double mega calm. And I don't want you to think about this like everything just went back to normal. No, it was, it was dead quiet. It was utterly still. Not a ripple in the water, not a puff of wind. That's a kind of peace that would have seemed strange and weighty and otherworldly. Recall, for instance, how at the judgment seat of Christ in Revelation chapter 4, the sea, again, almost always a picture of chaos and death everywhere else in the Bible, was like glass. That is, it was completely still. Even all that shouting is going on, if you remember that. It's a picture of perfect peace. And the same kind of thing seems to be happening right here. So in 2012, scientists at Orfield Lab in Minnesota began to test the effects of the world's quietest room on humans. It turns out that just 30 minutes alone in this room was enough to disturb people's sanity quite a bit. 45 minutes is the record, if you're wondering, for the longest stay. We don't know how to process that kind of stillness and silence. It can literally bring a person to their knees. Since we orient ourselves to some degree by the sounds we make when we walk and we breathe and things like that, a place this quiet takes away all the perceptual cues that allow you to balance and maneuver. Well, that's probably something like what these disciples experienced here. So you might ask, what would you be thinking in a moment like this? How would you be feeling? This peace was disorienting for them because it was so unique. You might even say it was so holy. But it also powerfully changes them. And the resolution to this story comes as they respond appropriately with what we might label a peaceful fear in verses 40 and 41. Jesus says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In the Gospels we read that Jesus is at times in his humanity astonished at the faith of certain people like when he marveled at the faith of the Gentile centurion in Matthew chapter 8. This is a similar incident, except this time he's astonished at their lack of faith. 
And notice I said astonished. I did not say indignant. I think he's gently saying something like, how can it be that you don't understand who I am yet and what I came to do? Do you believe that my father would let me die before his work is done? Will he not take care of you too since you're with me? If you remember, Jesus says something quite similar in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not difficult or uncommon for someone to read a tone into Jesus as he's like he's wagging his finger at us with scorn and contempt when he says things like, do not be anxious, O you of little faith. Some of you stumble into this misunderstanding because you're rightly trying to be obedient. And amen, that's a well-placed motive. Others of you may have believed a lie about God's disposition towards those who are in Christ. His love is hard to see through your shame. It's become second nature for you to view any correction or directive from God as disappointment and condemnation. This misunderstanding also affects the way that we read or give weight to other statements in the same passage, like, your heavenly Father knows what you need. Don't worry. You're more valuable to Him than the birds that He meticulously cares for and the flowers that He calls uncommonly beautiful. He will take care of you. Or most affectionately, my favorite in Luke's account, Jesus says to them, fear not, my little flock. That's the tone that he's bringing to passages like that one and passages like this one. For some of you, it's difficult to resolve the apparent tensions between commands and comforts. Others of you may have created or accepted a false Jesus who would never correct anyone. So you've misunderstood love. In reality, the Bible as a whole says some variation of do not fear more than any other singular directive. If the Bible addresses fear that much, how then should we understand questions like, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Are they implied commands? Are they explicit comforts? It is true that the disciples should have known to trust Jesus completely. Jesus is always our perfect example of the way that things should be. The disciples' anger at Jesus here indicates there was likely at some, in some sense, in their response, sin. But I want to be very clear here about something else. Weakness is not sin. Weakness is not itself sinful. And that includes the realistic recognition that we're, in fact, fragile creatures living in a fallen world, and that is scary. We are not God. At present, we suffer, not always directly because of our own sin. Just ask Job. And so, to feel fearful feelings or to have terrifying thoughts does not itself prove that you're in sin. Being concerned about losing something good or never getting it at all can just be grief. Just ask any parent here whose child has been in the hospital or any couple who've been unable to have children. That stuff is scary. 
It means you understand something is wrong with this world. The instinct to avoid or escape danger is good. It's a God-given function meant to keep you alive. When, and it works like it should. It's a good thing. But people hurt us. Our bodies overcompensate when we perceive danger. Accidents take lives too soon. Cancer steals our loved ones away. Brains get injured. Neurology malfunctions. Thoughts and feelings intrude upon us. So I also want to be clear that none of this in any way is ever an excuse for sin. We are all responsible before God and to each other for how we respond to the presence of suffering and temptation in our lives. Even if we didn't ask for it to be there. I know the saints of this congregation are not strangers to these kinds of struggles. I pray that we meet them alongside one another with both compassion and with earnestness. And so in one sense, yes, why are you afraid implies correction. Or perhaps more accurately, it's a directive. Said in the same gentle spirit as fear not, little flock. The question is rhetorical and communicates that they need not be afraid. Peter's words later in the New Testament reflect this lesson learned well. Believers are to cast all our anxieties upon Christ because he cares for us. And in that sense, this directive is also, and maybe even somewhat more so, meant as a comfort. Think of it this way. If a child is afraid of a late-night thunderstorm, something about that fear makes sense, doesn't it? The storm, if the child were alone outside in it, would be a real threat. And even from indoors, it sounds very threatening. But the child also misunderstands, don't they? They don't rightly account for the loving presence and sheltered protection that their parents provide them. So they cry out in fear, and that fear is also very real. The parents, of course, respond by coming to the child. And what do they do? The parents scold the child for being afraid. Do they condescendingly bark at them about how silly they're being? Well, of course not. They wrap their child up in their arms and say, don't be afraid. If the parents have explained about storms before, they might even ask, why are you afraid? Which is essentially to say, remember what we talked about? Don't you trust me? Are mommy and daddy going to take care of you? Don't be scared. It's going to be okay. That parent is not telling the child to just stop it. They're giving the child a reason, their word and their presence, to believe that their care for the child is greater than the storm is frightening. Another way to say this, the Bible seems to say it this way, often, is that the child's fear of their parents was greater than their fear of the storm. And I realize that can be confusing. Fear in Scripture just packs more meaning than the way we normally speak. It doesn't just mean scared or afraid or things like that. What people mean by anxiety, usually when they're talking, includes about just anything that has to do with fear or nervousness at all, good or bad. But that's not all it should mean to us, especially as Christians. Fear in the Bible carries with it the idea of overwhelming amazement. 
It refers to what we find worthy of awe and reverence. What we find to be majestic, praiseworthy, powerful, beautiful. In a word, we might say that fear is worship. The theme of Proverbs is essentially that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. David teaches us, doesn't he, that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Well, also, though, in its more sinister forms, we might find later in Proverbs that the fear of man lays a snare. And as believers, John instructs us not to fear punishment from God because His perfect love for us in Christ has cast it out. And so here in verse 41, we see the last of these three megas that we've been talking about. The disciples were filled with great or mega fear, which is interesting, right? Seems odd. When Jesus asks why they're so afraid, he uses the Greek word delos, which means dread, which is often associated with unbelief, and it can even include the idea of cowardliness. But when Mark says that they were filled with great fear, the word is phobos, which is where we get the term phobia. That word is better defined as astonishment, amazement, or a reverential fear, sometimes understood to be inseparably conjoined with affection and hope. And so, with the passage building upon itself, we really see first a mega storm, then a super mega calm, and now an extra super mega fear. That's one way to say it. Great dread gives way to an even greater awe. So, if we were to ask it, how are God's people to overcome fear in their lives? Well, with fear. A fear or awe of created things is meant to be supplanted by a fear of the Lord. So, there's fear, but then there's fear. And so, in response to everything, the disciples ask each other the central question of the passage. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And though terrifying, I don't think this moment was absent of joy for them. And I'll tell you why. We read it earlier. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it for you. But in Psalm 107, this event is foretold and foreshadowed. Some went down to the sea in ships. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm to be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Also, if you were to read the first chapter of Jonah, you'd find basically an identical set of circumstances here. We'd also notice a few differences, and they're important. Primarily, that Jonah is running away from the presence of the Lord, while Jesus is running toward God's plan, that plan being the cross which is both his greatest joy and his greatest terror. 
That cross which in Gethsemane Jesus prayed about anxiously with a right fear of the wrath of God, asking in his humanity if there's any other way, but also sure of his Father's goodwill and the glorious outcome. And so, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he'll return from those mortal depths. And so he did in his resurrection. At this point, I would have you consider a question. Where are you running? You're running somewhere. Where are you running? Are you running away from fear? And two, all sorts of false saviors and idols, maybe even to yourself. Or toward fear, but into Christ, knowing that he will go before you in all things. Our Savior doesn't just say not to be afraid. He gives us a reason and a hope. The reason being that he is more frightening and intimidating than anything we could ever face. But the hope, which makes all the difference, by the way, that he is for us and never against us. He is our great father and he is worthy of our fear. That is, he's worthy of our worship. So as we round all this out, I would ask you the same question that the passage does. Who is this Jesus? Friend, if you're here today and you have not come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you need to know that you really are on your own. You've got no reason to believe that the storm of God's judgment won't destroy you. You should expect no lasting peace because you've yet to be reconciled to your creator, the God of peace himself. But the good news is that that salvation is freely available to all who would come to him. To my brothers and sisters, let me first give you some encouragement. A frantic pace of life may be commended by the world around us and seem like it holds great promise sometimes, but it comes at a cost that we shouldn't be willing to pay. Making the best use of our time as Christians is not about doing as much as possible. It's about stewarding those resources to God's glory and our enjoyment of Him. A hectic life may look productive, but may in fact be fruitless and anxious toil. And in pursuit of other things, you may be neglecting what's most important. Also, the saints in this congregation, they need your encouragement in the fearful things of life. And you need them just as much as they need you. They need your encouragement in their faint-heartedness and your help in their weakness. And they may even need those things before they need your admonishment. Regardless, we are to be patient. We should listen long and listen well. Get to know the brother or sister sitting across from you when you talk and what they're going through. Don't just dispense Christianese coffee mug types of advice. You may not be able to say much sometimes, but don't be a fixer, be a friend. But don't just listen also. Instead, also pray for them and offer to pray with them. You might pray the Psalms together. 
There's plenty there that shows us how to pray when we're anxious. If you don't know where to start, try Psalms like 34, 46. And Paul tells us, doesn't he, in Philippians 4, that when we are anxious, we should pray with supplication and thanksgiving. And we draw close to God so that we find the kind of peace that can only come from Christ, the kind that surpasses understanding. And also let me say, as I've watched and walked with so many of you through this kind of thing, I want you to know how encouraged that I am, and I think I speak for our elders when I say this, about how often and how well you do this with each other, just constantly. You're a people who are willing to go to hard places. You get into the nuances, and you listen with compassion. You should be encouraged for that reason, too. You should continue in those things. I can't tell you how many people I meet with elsewhere who have been hurt because church environments aren't like the one that we have here. That's not a boast. That's of grace, okay? But don't let that slip away. And if you feel like you can't or don't know how to help others with things like this, I want you to also be encouraged that you have everything that you need to do what God has called you to do in times like this. God's Word and Spirit are sufficient for you to be used as a faithful instrument in His redeeming hands. God has chosen His church to be given the privilege of being His ministers of reconciliation. So, do it. You can. Those of you who struggle with anxiety, give grace to those saints who would seek to help but end up unknowingly saying unhelpful things. It happens. Talk with them. Help them understand where you're coming from. Don't make it an opportunity for contempt or bitterness in your heart. So anyway, whatever it may be, are you in sinful dread in your response to fearful things? Well, turn quickly and flee to Christ. Are you plagued by unwelcome and intrusive fearful thoughts and feelings? Be honest about them. Don't run. Bring them also quickly to Christ. Are you in the middle of truly terrifying circumstances? Call out to your God and Savior who hears His people and rises for them. Perhaps right now you're basically doing well and find your walk with Christ peaceful and easy. And please don't grow weary of coming back to Him over and over again. As we close, to round out our story in 1521, after his conversion, Martin Luther was summoned to the imperial council at Worms, being accused of publicly opposing the teachings of Rome and its pope, which he certainly was doing and should have been doing, and he wasn't in any way trying to hide from that. But Martin is a different man now. Now again, death seems imminent, but this time Luther isn't impulsive. He isn't fearless either, but he is courageous in the face of it. His reverence for Christ and God's Word proved greater than his fear of execution. When asked if he would retract what he'd said, Martin initially muttered his answer so timidly that no one could even hear him in the room. So after repeating it louder, 
Basically, he asked for a day to think it over. He went back to his prison cell and he prayed. And I was going to quote that prayer. You should look it up later. It's beautiful. It's too much. And knowing that this meant execution, Luther still returned the next day sorrowful, downcast, and afraid to some degree, and he spoke these famous words. I'm bound by the scriptures I've quoted to my conscience, and it's captivated by the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. This was not like in the movies where he's like yelling at them, right, with all this confidence. He was timid even then. But he knew who his God was. Luther was subsequently, subsequently rescued before he could be executed and went into hiding for almost a year. And while he was in hiding, he translated the Greek New Testament into German, the common language, and the rest, of course, is history. And you're probably sitting here for, to some degree in this room because of that. Martin didn't become a man without anxieties, though. He became a man who could say with confidence, if God is for us, who can be against us? And I pray that we all seek out this kind of humble courage with more zeal than we give entertainment to our fears. So let's pray.